And welcome back, everyone, to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me can connect as we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Please find out more about me at my website, uh, which is in the process of being revamped right now, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find out uh, more about me and connect with me on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me rather easily. Uh, So thanks for tuning in today. And before we start, I want to make sure that uh, I thank the sponsor of this show, Airway Science for Kids, uh, for their continued support. Uh, Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in the fields of aviation and aerospace. And they do so uh, not only by providing in-house programs that they can do uh, on site or in schools or virtually, but they also uh, work with different community entities uh, that could be universities, it could be uh, companies, um, any sort of edu- uh, any sort of entity to uh, connect students better with their communities and help them strengthen their own families, strengthen their own sense of self-advocacy and their own direction. Uh, if you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, you can check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly via email using the, uh, the address info at airsci.org. So thanks to them. Uh, welcome, everyone, to episode 63 of this show for March 21st, 2022. And uh, because the demand is still there, uh, sadly, uh, because the war in Ukraine is still going on, I'm going to be continuing with that discussion today. A number of people continue to reach out to me uh, in response to previous episodes, uh, but also just with other questions that have come up out of that uh, for more background information and perspective, uh, if you will, on what's happening. And so with that in mind, I've titled today's show, The Bear in the Backyard. Uh, the bear, a term often used to describe Russia, and I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in just a minute. Uh, So The Bear in the Backyard is the title, and the haiku that goes with it today gives you an idea of where we're going to go on this goes like this. What we often call wild is more often than not what we don't yet know. What we often call wild is more often than not what we don't yet know. And, and of course, the suggestion is is we don't know Russia as well as we should uh, or perhaps as well as we thought we did prior to all of this. Now, maybe that's not news, but let's talk about a little bit of why Maybe that is the case from uh, from our position here in the United States and, and maybe in the West more generally, although that the term the West is a very broad, uh, very broad term. Um, so last week when I called in from the road and thanks to my producer, Stacy Heller, again, for for sitting in and, and asking some really quality questions uh, to set the table for today. I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, how did we get here in the West uh, where this wasn't seen as possible? what Putin was doing. Why, why were we seemingly caught by surprise uh, by this? It's, it's very easy after a big event happens to look back and say, oh, we should have seen these things at this point. Uh, and there's some value to that, but there's also, I think, oftentimes limited value to that because then it descends into blame rather than taking a look at the context of what was going on. And from a historian's point of view, which I am by training, I'm very interested in why things happened and what we can learn from them. And I think taking a look at the last three decades of uh, American views and approaches towards Russia at the end of the Cold War can tell us a lot about how, how we got here. And so this isn't to say, though, that uh, right, from the, right from the start here, it's not to say that 
the United States or the West is to blame for what is happening here. No, Putin blame. Putin carries the entirety of the blame here. What we should take a look at is how did we miss it, and what can we learn from this when this is over, and may it be soon. Uh, so it seemed to me that as I was kind of thinking on where I wanted to go with this, that taking a look at the bear metaphor uh, for Russia could be a good way to frame this. And and it, I was reminded of this when I was reading a story earlier this past week um, of a meeting in Europe between a number of European diplomats who were getting together to discuss the growing crisis in Ukraine. And this was before Putin invaded, just a few days before, as a matter of fact. And an American observer was there, and he uh, wrote about uh, an interview he had with some Hungarian diplomats who were really frustrated by what they were hearing at this conference from not just American uh, observers and American participants, but Australian and others, who they said were so far away from Russia that they didn't understand what it was like to have, as they put it, a bear in your backyard, as Hungary does, right? Uh, as we've seen, and Hungary is one of the uh, one of the two countries, along with Poland, receiving the most Ukrainian refugees flooding across their border, fleeing fleeing the Russian invasion. And these Hungarian diplomats were saying it's so easy sometimes for Americans, the Australians, anybody who's far away, to say, well, you should take a harder line, or things should be this much clearer with Russia. They don't have a bear in their backyard, and and it got me thinking of that. And that and Russia has been referred to as the bear for a really long time. But the term goes back to, as far as the 16th century. Uh, in uh, British plays would refer to Russia as as the bear. Uh, and certainly throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, as the Russian Empire grew and became more of an international player, if you will, in global affairs, uh, the term the bear was used to refer to them. And it wasn't meant to be complimentary. Uh, it was used mostly in Britain for that period of time. And, of course, it conjures up a very powerful image, right? A bear is big. It's mysterious. It's often solitary. It's definitely wild, strong, overpowering when angered, but can hibernate for long periods. And they're, they're just mysterious and hard to predict. And, of course, what that means is, by implication, is that anybody who knows that there's a bear out there <laughs> needs to be wary, needs to be ready, and you're not really going to know what happens when you confront one until you do. And uh, it was not meant as a term of endearment, as I mentioned. And even in the 20th century, uh, as more American politicians began to uh, use that and commentators began to use this notion of the bear, uh, it became increasingly popular. Uh, there was some World War II propaganda, for example, in the United States extolling the virtues of the Red Army fighting against the Nazis, where it was a big, giant Soviet bear slaying a Nazi lion with a lightning bolt, right? So that, that imagery was, was out there. Um, and even in the, after the Second World War, uh, to a certain degree, in Russia, the idea of embracing the bear became a little bit more popular. Uh, oftentimes people remember in 1980, Moscow had the Summer Olympics, and their mascot was a little bear, cute, cuddly bear named Misha, that was supposed to, you know, put a friendlier face on what the Soviet Union was all about. Of course, that was happening right in the midst of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which uh, led to the United States and a number of other Western nations boycotting the summer games that year in 1980. And so it uh, didn't necessarily quite work. And even today, um, some Russians will joke about uh, the idea that Americans think that there's just a bunch of bears running around Russia, that that's a popular, a popular image. But nevertheless, what I focused on, and, and to me what really stood out, was that the Hungarian notion, as, they, as this article talked about, about a bear in the backyard. Um, Ronald Reagan, 
when he was running for president in both of his campaigns in 1980 and 1984, talked about Russia as the bear in the woods uh, and saying that, you know, as a way of pointing out that he was the best one to keep an eye on that bear in the woods. Uh, and of course, the Hungarians would say, well, the bear is in your woods. The bear is in our backyard. <laughs> there's, there's, there's two different things. So as we take a look at this, I think it's helpful for everybody listening to be thinking in 10-year blocks as I talk about these things going forward, okay? It's kind of a, I found it's a, a good way to go about this. So the 1990s, beginning with the fall of the Soviet Union, 1991, the 2000s, and then the 2010s up until now, right? So I think there's, it's a story in here of, uh, I think, reviewing a little bit of the recent history, current events, to kind of get a sense of how all this happened and why, why we ended up being caught, most of us, by surprise. So let's rotate back to 1991, it's really hard if you were not alive at the time to really recreate or describe the feelings that came with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Uh, for several generations of people in the world, the, the superpower rivalry between the U.S. and the USSR had dominated not just political life, but daily life. <laughs> and, and there was constant uh, concern that a nuclear exchange was going to happen throughout the Cold War. And so when, when this happened in 1991, with very few shots fired, none at all, in fact, between the uh, Soviet Union and the United States, there was relief, there was joy, there was disbelief, certainly. Uh, but there was a lot of euphoria, at least in the United States, as well as in Western Europe. That had begun in 1989, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, when uh, Eastern European nations that were part of the Warsaw Pact threw off communism and Mikhail Gorbachev, the last general secretary of the Soviet Union, refused to put down those uh, resistance movements with tanks the way other Soviet leaders had done. And so by the end of 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in East Germany, most of Eastern Europe had broken away from the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union didn't stop them. In 1991, when the Soviet Union dissolved, as I again, as I mentioned last week, all those countries that had been Soviet socialist republics, including Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic states, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all had to go their own way and make their own decisions. And Russia did as well. And it's in this, uh, it's in that context that all of these, what we can look back on as these challenges and threads that lead to what's happening in Ukraine really begin. Uh, so when that happened, when the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia was going to go its own way. All those other Soviet socialist republics were going to go their own way. And the amount of work that was going to be involved in creating democracy in those countries where they had, it hadn't existed before, uh, certainly in the case of Russia, hadn't existed before, complete economic overhaul, going from a communist state-owned, state-run system to uh, sort of liberal capitalism and and democracy was going to be an immense challenge, and it really was. So this was beyond extensive. In Russia, in the 1990s, this was led by Boris Yeltsin, the first uh, post-Soviet president of Russia, who had spearheaded the charge to first remove Russia from the Soviet Union, and then it had become the face of the anti-coup resistance to Gorbachev in 1991. In August of 91, uh, Soviet hardliners tried to overthrow Gorbachev and failed. Uh, in large part because Boris Yeltsin literally, in one case, uh, picked up a bullhorn and was screaming at Russian tanks or Soviet tanks that were bearing down on everyday citizens protesting this. He became a global iconic figure for this. And after after the fall of the Soviet Union, became the first president of Russia. And so hopes were high 
in Russia as well as in the West that Yeltsin was going to guide Russia towards increased uh, political and economic uh, and then hopefully security integration with the rest of the world. It was being hailed as a moment where truly maybe some peace would be upon us. It led even some some really excited commentators to, to, to proclaim that we were at the end of history. The big ideological challenges of the 20th century were gone. Liberal democratic ideas had won out. Capitalism had proven itself uh, victorious, so on and so on and so on. And a, and a wonderful new world was about to arrive, or at least a new world. Well, that began to really erode. Oftentimes, very rarely in global affairs do expectations meet reality. Uh, and this was very difficult. Throughout the 1990s, the difficulties of making these changes in Russia and the difficulties inherent in Boris Yeltsin's personality and leadership uh, led to a lot of disappointment. The privatization of all these industries, heavy industries like oil and uh, natural gas manufacturing and delivery, uh, any kind of heavy industry, you name it, all of this had been run by state entities. And when they privatized a number of bureaucrats in the old Soviet system, snatched up what I guess you could call shares of these and became billionaires literally overnight. That is where a lot of these oligarchs uh, that you hear so much about came from. Uh, And of course, a burgeoning criminal underworld began to emerge as well in the 1990s in Russia. And those things together combined with increased corruption in politics as a result of these meant that a lot of everyday Russians throughout the 1990s saw their hopes for a better future being consistently denied Uh, you know, push down the road, that type of thing. And so this led to a lot of disillusionment uh, as the 1990s wore on. Now, at the same time, as this was happening in Russia internally, externally on questions of security, those nations that had either been a part of the Soviet Union or part of the Warsaw Pact, countries you're hearing all about today, all were making very clear to anyone who listened they wanted to move away from Russia's dominance. And they wanted to be more part of the European Union's growing economic success as an entity, but then also increasingly be a part of NATO and be under the security umbrella, not just of of Europe, but also of the United States, right? The lone remaining superpower. They saw that their security needed to be there because of their historical experience with Russia. And so very clearly, very from the very early part of the 1990s, discussions began about adding some of these former Warsaw Pact nations into NATO, effectively pushing NATO's boundaries with Russia further and further east. During the 1990s, the Clinton administration ratcheted down uh, the intelligence network, keeping an eye on the Russians, reduced anti-Russian rhetoric, and really put forward economic and political aid to Russia in the name of creating a more integrated relationship with Russia economically and politically and a more positive one uh, with Boris Yeltsin. This ended up having middling results. But also on Clinton's watch in that first 10-year period in the 1990s, three former Warsaw Pact countries, that would be Hungary, I've already mentioned, the Czech Republic, and Poland, all joined in 1999. They were invited to join in 1997 by NATO and did so in 1999, right towards the end of Boris Yeltsin's uh, uh, period as president. In 1990, when Germany reunified, uh, they brought in the territory of East Germany and they too Uh, joined uh, into NATO. West Germany was already a part of it, so they just added East Germany in. And of course, because of what was happening in Russia internally, uh, there was not a lot of ability for Russia to do much of anything around that. Now, in May of 2000, 
another phase began as far as this was concerned. When the Baltic states, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, created what they called the Vilnius Group. And they were going to work together to lobby together to join NATO. And several others joined the Vilnius Group. Countries Bulgaria, uh, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia. They all joined into this group asking for admission into this. And every one of those nations I just mentioned joined in 2004. So all of those areas that had been under Soviet domination by 2004, a short 12, 13 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, were now a part of NATO. Uh, A few more ended up joining later. Albania and Croatia joined in 2009, North Macedonia in 2020, Montenegro in 2017. Now, that's a big shift. Not in there, of course, are some nations whose we've been hearing a lot more about in the last month. Former Soviet Socialist Republics like Georgia, Belarus, and Ukraine. So it's not a surprise, based on what I just laid out, that there would be deep concerns from any Russian leader, probably not just Putin, about what this expansion of NATO would mean. And it doesn't necessarily mean it was a mistake, but what it does mean is that that was a factor in what's happening here. Right in the middle of the Vilnius group starting its negotiations, Vladimir Putin came to power. In August of that year, of 2000, I visited Russia with my buddy Seth, who was on the show a few weeks ago. We were there visiting a relative of his who worked at the U.S. Embassy, and I was amazed by what I saw there. Putin was not the Putin that he is now. Uh, if Russia, if the Russia that I saw was a bear, it was a weakened one and seemed to be pretty dazed and confused at the time. Uh, it was Moscow was a bustling city, still is. You know, lanes twelve, you know, twelve lanes wide, roads, that type of thing. Very busy streets, fantastic restaurants. I had Georgian and Uzbeki food, which was amazing. Very different architecture and arts. Uh, socialist realism dominated everything. Uh, Moscow has exquisite railway stations, uh, subway stations, oftentimes built with uh, the torn down marble and gold of Russian Orthodox churches that the Soviets tore down during the Cold War. Uh, It's a very, very different place uh, than anything that I had ever really seen or really imagined. I, I didn't know then and I still don't know Cyrillic, so I was functionally illiterate while I was there. But I was there right in the middle of one of Putin's first crises as president, and that was the Kursk submarine disaster. A, uh, a Russian nuclear submarine had an accident uh, while on a mission in the Baltic Sea and sank to the bottom of the Baltic Sea, and a number of a dozens of sailors ended up dying, but not before they lived for a number of hours. And uh, when I was there in Russia, Putin was being raked over the coals by the independent press, which doesn't exist there anymore, raked over the coals for not taking the immediate offers that the United States, Britain, and Norway offered with, you know, better technology to go send rescue subs to pull these guys out of this uh, wrecked submarine. It didn't happen. And so all those men died on that ship. And Putin seemed to me to be pretty weak uh, coming into that. Um, It's one of the things that that immediately alienated him from the independent press in Russia, which is worth uh, thinking about. Uh, For me, as a Ph.D. student studying on, on one level Russian history at the time, this was absolutely fascinating. And... It remained to be seen what Putin's relationship was going to be like with the United States in 2000. Later that year, George W. Bush was elected president of the United States, a very different president than Bill Clinton. But there would just like Clinton ran into problems with Russia, so would Bush, because a year later, of course, September 11th happened. And suddenly the U.S., which was no longer paying as close of attention to Russia as it had during the Cold War, was paying even less attention to them. 
focusing a lot more, understandably so, on Osama bin Laden, what was going to happen in Afghanistan, later on Iraq, less understandably so, depending on who you ask. And suddenly now, the United States' attention was elsewhere. And at the time, interestingly enough, Putin was very against uh, what the U.S. was doing in the Middle East for his own reasons. But he was actually, in the case of Iraq, on the side of a number of countries that he is now enemies with in the European Union in denouncing what the U.S. was doing there. And because of that, because the U.S. was increasingly preoccupied in that part of the world, the European Union, knowing it still had a bear in their backyard, began to negotiate more and more with Putin. And Putin began to leverage the success he was finding as a as the president in Russia to effectively leverage more of Europe uh, in Russia's favor. Putin had promised to crack down on corruption, and he did to a certain degree. He uh, he stabilized the Russian economy. Russia actually went through a period in the mid 2000s where it was actually its economy was growing and becoming more prosperous. And it earned Putin the reputation of being the best leader in terms of the day in day out life of Russia that they had ever seen in the, you know, the last century. And there was some truth to that. And it's bought him still continued credit to this day among older Russians that he effectively stabilized in their minds Russia's society economics and began to push back on uh, the security losses that Russia had experienced since the end of the Cold War. And so because of that, Putin became more popular than Yeltsin uh, before him. And that has a big role in here. Uh, as the United States became further involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, and those became increasingly mired uh, in difficulty, Putin was able to use that to his advantage. Not only could he supply... Uh, uh, weapons and material and intelligence to groups like the Taliban and others, uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, terrorist groups that could cause trouble for the U.S. But it also gave him more of a, I guess, more of a free hand, if you will, uh, to start pushing his security agenda forward. It's not a surprise that in August of 2008, ahead of Obama's election, he sent tanks into Georgia, a country that wanted to join NATO. And he sent his tanks in and nobody did anything to stop it. And so Georgia fell under that, that spell. This kicked off eight years of antagonism between Putin and Obama's administrations. And it's not a surprise that it's in those eight years that Putin would push forward into annexing Crimea and elsewhere. He, he used the Sochi Winter Olympics as cover internationally to push more of his agenda uh, in breaking down this, this new security dynamic. And, of course, he used to his advantage that Obama's attention was in the same place George Bush's had been in terms of uh, foreign policy. In 2012, uh, in, a, in a statement that is making its way around the press again, in 2012, presidential candidate Mitt Romney was exoriated by Obama and others for saying that Russia was still the number one strategic enemy of the United States. And in fact, a campaign uh, commercial said the Cold War is over from Obama's side. Right? And... So what you see here is <laughs> not a whole lot of success, whether the president's presidencies have been Democratic or Republican, in understanding what was happening with, with Russia. In 2014, of course, uh, not only was Crimea now a part of Russia, but Putin was actively encouraging anti-Ukrainian sentiment in eastern Ukraine and in, in predominantly Russian areas. And that May of 2014, uh, Russian forces in the eastern part of Ukraine, accidentally shot down uh, Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, killing almost 300 innocent civilians, uh, and then blamed the Ukrainians for it. 
everyone forgets that part, right? It's not a surprise that this was happening in this context of where the United States' attention was in the world and what was happening internally in the United States. And of course, in 2016, this helps explain why Putin was so actively involved in trying to meddle with the 2016 election cycle. And it makes sense why he used to his advantage the presidency of Donald Trump that refused to antagonize him and refused to criticize him. So what you have here across the board, I want to point out here, is no matter what side of the political aisle, American presidents and administrations have not paid good enough attention to the bear in the backyard or the bear in the woods, <laughs> right? And it's been for a number of different reasons. And along the way, Putin has recognized this and used this to his advantage to continue to leverage his position. In Europe, because of Europe's increasing dependency on Russian oil and natural gas, he's been able to use that need to leverage political concessions and to reduce criticism of Russia's foreign policy. At least it worked until he invaded Ukraine. And suddenly Germany and France, his number one targets for this, both for gas and for, uh, for diplomatic leverage, both turned on him pretty quickly and shut down their pipelines and are now considering a full-scale boycott of Russian oil and natural gas, which would add further damage to the Russian economy. But this is the larger, this is the larger piece to take away with as we talk about this. Uh, Putin certainly had his direction and was, in a lot of ways, in retrospect, it's easy to see, he was kind of telling everybody where he was going to go. He was showing very clearly where he was going to go, and he was relying upon inattentiveness, particularly on the part of the United States, but also kind of mixed needs in Europe to get what he wanted until he was really willing to throw the dice. And he's thrown the dice in Ukraine, and of course it is not going well. His gamble is not working. And that's where we've ended up. Fortunately, he telegraphed his, his move on Ukraine with enough weeks in advance that the United States and its European allies and NATO were actually able to come up with plans, contingency plans, in case he did invade, so they weren't scrambling at the last minute. So, despite all of his best planning, Putin's own narcissism and arrogance and tunnel vision got in the way. So, that's just my quick, <laughs> quick uh, look at Western approaches to Russia and why we are where we are. If you have any thoughts on this, any comments, any questions, please reach out to me at my website, wordsbyjdk.com, or on my uh, social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. would love to hear more about it. And the more I hear from you, the more I will continue to talk about this. So please let me know. So thank you for joining me on this episode of This Show is All About You. Hope to see you again soon. And until then, chins up, everyone. <laughs>